Eat your eggs. They're gonna be cold. Eat my eggs. Eat my eggs. Eat my eggs. Man say, I got me a dream. A woman say, I'll pass the cream. Man say, just hear the plans that I've made. A woman say, marmalade. Man say, don't make me wait. A woman say, I'll pass your plate. Man say, here's what I care about most. A woman say, I burnt the toast. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 6th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased where finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. So uh, if you do not follow Peter on Facebook, you you must. You must, because you're cracking me up, Peter. Not a day goes by oh. that we don't talk about Sondheim. Isn't that true? <laughs> yeah, and um, unfortunately, when uh, that year went fast, um, the, which virtually it's the uh, anniversary of his death, and um, it, it, it's really been very much in the forefront of my mind. And also, because of that... Um, Paul Sulcini, who wrote, um, who initiated the Sondheim Review, just came out with a book um, which has essentially <laughs> the review's greatest hits, and it's well worth uh, perusing to see um, all the things that happened during the ten years that he was editing the magazine. So, ha, huh. all right. <laughs> but uh, aside from the Sondheim insights, you had a special column at Masterworks Broadway about that. I'll have to link to that in the show notes. Sure. Um, one's coming about uh, Paul Sosini's book, but uh, yeah, there have been others too. Sure. <laughs> okay. And then uh, what was the Phyllis Diller quote this week? Oh, yeah. Somebody was talking <laughs> about the fact that uh, if you have a good relationship, you really should never go to bed mad. With um, it, That's the important <laughs> thing, to make up before you go to bed. And Phyllis still said she and her husband used to do that. They would always make up before they would go to bed. <laughs> However, one time they were up for six months straight without going to bed because nobody would <laughs> apologize. So, <laughs> yeah, she was great. Just great. And everybody who saw her in Dolly, I did not say she was terrific. Yes. I never heard anything. You too, yes. Michael. Yeah. Yep. No. Good. All right. So that other voice you just heard was Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So Michael and Peter got down to the Newman Theater at the Public to see A Raisin in the Sun. So, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? Well, I... I guess I would say that if you see this production as a boxing match mm. between the author, Lorraine Hansberry, and the director, Robert O'Hara, uh, I would say that uh, Miss Hansberry definitely wins, although she emerges from it somewhat bloodied. I, I just can't imagine why someone would give interviews uh, pretending to you know, respect the work of a playwright and then make all these ridiculous changes in the play. 
through staging things in ways they've never been staged before and make absolutely no sense, uh, adding back scenes that had been cut, um, tagging on a, uh, a horrendously horrifying uh, stage image at the end of the play that was never, never, ever in there uh, and changes the entire uh, feeling of, of the, the end of the play. Uh, I, I just do not get it. I, I, I think it's actually kind of shameful. Um, I should also say, I, I, I guess I was uh, primed maybe not to like this uh, for reasons that I hadn't expected, because when I got to the theater, it was absolutely freezing. Uh, and I complained about it and was given some, uh, some excuse about it because the building is so old, we, it, it, it's difficult to keep the temperature correct, especially uh, at times of year when the, when the temperature is changing outside. Michael, and, I thought that you were about to say that you, they gave you a blanket. Yeah, so really exactly. For- that's, that's what I really <laughs> thought you were going to say, too. Yeah. <laughs> I get, I'm telling you, the public theater blankets, you get them for a $1,000 donation. And maybe do, they a actually have, do they actually have blankets? No. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, anyway, uh, no. And then actually I wrote to them and, and, and they, I got the same excuse back. But I don't know. The Newman is a, you know, is a historic theater that, among other things, saw the premieres of A Chorus Line and Hamilton. Uh, if they haven't been able to and hey thank you if they haven't by now been able to fix that problem uh maybe they should uh steer some of their resources to that instead of to uh salaries for the you know the higher ups in the organization <laughs> so anyway and, and that's another thing we, we won't get into um mm-hmm. the uh i um i you know i could give details about uh, the ways in which this play has been uh, damaged and sabotaged by the director. Uh, Some of them would be spoilers. So, uh, so if you don't want any spoilers, maybe could stop listening now, but, but it's, uh, but I I guess I don't really have to get into too much of that. Um, There's overlapping dialogue that's used. And that actually, I thought um, was kind of effective to an extent, but then it's just that it went, overboard and it started to become annoying um as you may have read uh, the the role of lena's husband uh who is dead before the action of the play begins he has been reinserted as a ghost uh into the action uh sort of like that that her that uh failed experiment with that production of cat on a hot tin roof where they added back dream skipper um so uh and you know i again i i just don't think that that's supposed to happen uh, and that if the playwright had wanted to do that she could have done it herself uh so the second guessing is just makes me makes my blood boil i mean it really does um uh oh here's an interesting thing that i don't think anyone else has um commented on there's the famous uh speech that walter lee younger has towards the beginning uh called man say uh, uh about how uh just how women and men variously address different things and, and what women consider important as to what men consider important and this um served as the basis for a so excuse me a song in the musical mm-hmm. raisin with that title man say well here the English has been corrected to man says. Now, what exactly is going on there? 
I mean, it was written as man say. We all know that that's not grammatical. Uh, that's not correct. Uh, it was written that way by a black female playwright as her uh, as her idea of how this this character would talk. So now we have. Um, do we now have a, a a black male director changing it to man says because he doesn't want him to speak ungrammatically? Uh, I, I do not know what was going on with that. Uh, what else? There's a scene, uh, offstage scene of noisy sex between uh, Ruth and and Walter Lee. That's added. We we don't see it, but we hear it. Uh, there's a uh, there's a well okay. I'll have to mention this one uh, towards the ver- towards the end of the play. Walter gives an impassioned speech about basically about Uncle Tomism and about how black men, uh, black people, and black men specifically might feel that they have to uh, bow down and and uh, scrape and shuffle, uh, you know, uh, in in the presence of white people just in order to survive in a racist America. And it's a very powerful speech. Well, here. He comes down to the the lip of the stage and stares out at the audience. The lighting changes. He di- he addresses the audience directly uh, about how this whole minstrel aspect of of what some black people feel they have to do. And as he's doing it, he holds up a playbill mm-hmm. for this production of A Raisin in the Sun. Is that supposed to say that Raisin in the Sun is minstrelsy? I I don't understand. I think he just did anything. This director, quote unquote, did anything that came into his head and threw it on stage. Just anything that he thought would get an effect, regardless of whether it violated what the playwright was going for. And anyway, I could go on and on, but I wanted to end with one interesting thing Um, in an interview uh, one of his interviews in which he professed to have respect for the play, the director said, this play is not about, for me, Walter Lee. Walter Lee comes into every scene, and it's the women who started those scenes. Walter just walks in and out of those rooms. You have these three dynamic Black women in this show, and people want to make it about a man and his dreams. But what about their dreams? There are all those conversations that one can have around it that makes this production special. Well, you know, thank you for telling us what makes this production special. But anyway, all right, so he said that, and then here's a quote from Jesse Green's New York Times review. In between, no matter how judiciously Hansberry has distributed the play's attention among the main characters, uh, including the matriarch Lena, Tonya Pinkins, and her daughter Benita Paige Gilbert, O'Hara concentrates his prodigious theatrical imagination on Walter Lee. So here's the New York Times critic uh, and uh, agreeing with me in thinking that the uh, focus of the production was exactly the opposite place where the director said it was in an interview in Playbill uh, or wherever it was. Um, so, uh, so I don't know what's going on there either, but I just think that's quite hilarious. Um, oh, also, uh, I should mention the at the uh, performance I went to, another reason I was not happy was that I got no advance notice, zero, that I would not be seeing um, Francois Batiste in the pivotal central male role of Walter Lee Younger, but instead I w- was lucky enough to see somebody who was really great in the role, and his name was Bjorn 
Dupati. Um, but still, I would have liked to have known because, you know, we're, we, we are, I mean, I'm a drama desk voter. We're supposed to be there for, for that purpose. And it's quite likely that Mr. Batiste might get a, might get a uh, drama desk nomination. And then I will have to recuse myself because I didn't see him <laughs> or I'll have to go back anyway. Um, so that's my, uh, my very, very, very upset uh, and peeved and infuriated response to this production of a raisin in the sun. Okay. Peter, what did you think? Well, what struck me at first was the fact that uh, everybody was angrier than most productions I've seen of raisin in the sun. Hmm. And, um, the fact that uh, they were at this heated point um, made any type of reconciliation seem like it was going to be much harder for, for the uh, characters. So uh, I've always felt the love that they've had, despite all the difficulties and the setbacks. And um, from the get-go, it was rapid-fire anger. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't see um, the uh, Walter Lee Sr., um, being a ghost i saw him just being a memory so i didn't have a problem with that i will say that um that the walter's coming forward at the end of the play and giving that speech that michael just described uh, very brechtian very brechtian but um awfully didactic um (laughs) awfully didactic and um yeah i i've never seen a production of raising the sun nor do i expect to where they'll actually show you a playbill from the one you actually have in your seat so i thought that was odd however however what i will say is that i am somebody who often thinks about what will happen to characters after the show is over i mean for example i don't think the sky masterson and sarah brown are going to be very happy for very long i don't I, yes. as we've discussed recently how, how can he spoiler beat that yeah <laughs> you know i just don't see it happening um and if indeed um tony only has a flesh wound i mean we only have maria's um, word for it that he's dead you know i mean he might just have fainted um if they got together i don't think they'd be very happy either especially i think they'd have a lot of in-law trouble why do i bring this up because at the end of raisin in the sun yes yes indeed mr o'hara adds a scene that is quite quite powerful but it makes sense to me i am sorry to say i wish that it didn't i understand what he's saying what he's saying is that since 1959 not a lot has changed or a lot and not enough has changed and i i agree with that i do have uh, questions on whether or not Lorraine Hansberry would um, approve of that. But on the other hand, recently seeing the Buckley Baldwin debate, Lorraine Hansberry was in that play. She became a character in that play. And she said it, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's not enough to be liberal. You have to be an activist. And uh, so she might very well have um, approved of this back in 1959. I guess she was more hopeful that if indeed um, the younger family moved out to Clybourne, park that um they live happily ever after robert o'hara says no no they wouldn't have lived happily ever after and um and while it was thrilling to see a new set come in of their new home which um really was such a step up from where they were uh as michael points out something else happens that's quite dramatic and uh, quite potent and i can't argue with it i i understand where o'hara is coming from I do. We can't and- argue that 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 very very likely might happen, but that's not what she wrote. She mm-hmm. could have written that without having the even if they didn't have the resources for a set change at the end of the show. 
She could have written it in dialogue. She decided not to write that. Did she not write it because she uh, wasn't allowed to or she was afraid to? Uh, no, even if, I, I even don't if know. that's the case, we, we don't know that. And he doesn't. No, we know don't. That. No, we don't know that. But <clears throat> what we also know is that Lorraine Hansberry has been dead for 57 years. And who knows what she might have said? You know, if it weren't for that Buckley Baldwin thing, when she came out with that statement, um, I might have um, agreed with you wholeheartedly. But um, given the fact that um, obviously she was. She was saying that after she became famous from this play, um, uh, nobody would be asking her opinion before then. Um, I think she may very well agree with Robert O'Hara. So um, I understand what you're saying, Michael. I don't totally disagree, but I don't totally disagree with what um, O'Hara did. Uh, in terms of the performances, um, I think they're very good. Uh, uh, it, it's amazing to me that Tanya Pinkins, who I still think of as an ingenue, is now playing um, the mother. But um, I, I, I cannot fault any of the performances for a tenth of a second. So, um, uh, but yeah, a little, little too much anger for me. And um, I, I could have I would have welcomed the non-Brechtian scene. Uh, I would have liked to have seen him actually tell that to his family and not to us. So, um, so there I'll agree with you, but uh, for the ending, I really can't, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm not happy with it, but I understand it. Okay. So there are (laughs) two views on a raisin in the sun playing down at the public. Uh, How long is it playing for? Too long. (laughs) <laughs> my, my, so long through evening, November twentieth. You know, yes. it surprised it surprised me. It, it um, it is very much, very much a, a three hour uh, plus production. I mentioned in passing that a, a, a scene that apparently had been cut for the original production has been added back. So that adds uh, time, and then the the bits with the ghost or the spirit. Uh, uh, to me, whether 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 he's a memory or a ghost doesn't really matter all that much the point is he is depicted on stage the dead father and Uh they even take a couple of lines um from someone else one of the other characters or uh to give to him to speak Mm. okay it is playing through november 20th i found uh the public and it's a hard ticket to get uh so uh check it out if you can Michael, you also headed over to City Center for another hard ticket to get this week as the limited uh, run production of City Center's uh, Parade played to Mm. much, much buzz around town. Mm. So tell us what you thought about this. You know, it's quite extraordinary. I I think it's fair to say that it's relatively rare uh, when a revival of a show is significantly better than the original of course, it's all a matter of opinion. But um, but for me, there have been at least two of those lately. And one was Take Me Out. Uh, and I think we all agree on that. Uh, and the other one is this this show, Parade. I, I admired it when I saw it <laughs> all those years ago at Lincoln Center at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. But I didn't love it. And I, I remember that at the time, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, um, although I... I, I had an idea about it, and and it seemed to be shared by some other people in other reviews, and I read in comments that I heard that um, part of the issue is that the central character of Leo Frank uh, is is not terribly likable. Uh, certainly, 
not for the bulk of the show. Uh, he becomes more and more empathetic and likable, I think, as the show continues um, towards its tragic conclusion. Uh, this, of course, based on the true life story of Leo Frank, a, a Jewish man who was living in uh uh, in the South with his wife uh, in 1913 and was uh, wrongly accused of killing one of his fat young factory workers and then eventually lynched for the crime. Uh, it, it just a really horrendous example of anti-Semitism uh, in the midst of uh, uh, the South where they're normally, uh, you know, their hatred is normally or was normally uh, or still mm -hmm. is normally, uh, you know, uh, more towards black people. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, it's it was a, a horrendous moment in history that that has been well documented, and I think I believe that the musical follows the historical record really quite closely. Um, anyway, uh, but Leo is a fish out of water. Uh, he's unhappy living uh, where he does, and he makes that very clear. And it's um, so it's hard for us to warm to him. But I think the main reason why this production uh, to me worked so much better than the original was because of the performance of Ben Platt, who did manage to bring um, quite a bit of humor to the early scenes. Uh, and I think that helped tremendously to get the audience on his side. Uh, I mean, he still was, uh, he still made it clear that, that the character uh, felt uncomfortable and, and that he wasn't very happy. And, and, and he still made it clear that he's quite cold, fairly cold towards his wife, Lucille. Um, he made all of that clear, but, but there was enough humor in it. Uh, and, and the audience responded like gangbusters to that because a lot of people there were clearly Ben Platt fans and they really wanted to see him and they wanted to see him be charming and, and quirky and funny as he was in so much of Dear Evan Hansen. Um, and I think he was very, very, very successful in that uh, probably with some help maybe from Michael Arden who directed this production so very, very well. So I think that that is a main uh, reason why uh, this just, went over beautifully with the audience. Uh, I, I, I still recognize some flaws in that. I think it's a little overwritten. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of music and lyrics in the show. It, it, almost, it almost seems like it's almost through sung. I mean, there are a couple of scenes, uh, dialogue scenes that are somewhat extended, but I would say 90% of it is, is probably uh, music and lyrics and, and only maybe 10% is spoken dialogue. Um, I think that maybe there are a few too many characters uh, than there need to be. Uh, and as I say, just maybe overwritten, although the only the only song in it where I was said to myself, you know, that really could go. We really don't need this song is an act two number uh, between the judge and the prosecuting attorney, uh, which I didn't think added anything really to the to the show. And it it should have been cut because we at that point, we want to get to the, you know, to the denouement. Um, the ensemble of this show is 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 stellar i mean these are people in some of them very very small roles john dossett howard mcgillan jay armstrong johnson jennifer laura thompson paul alexander nolan william michaels um 
absolutely incredible. A friend and I were were marveling over that. I, I think everyone just really wanted to uh, work on this show, which many people considered to be um, to not have been given its full due uh, when it first opened, and also the chance to work with Jason Robert Brown directly because he conducted this production. Uh, so, uh, I, I guess maybe that's why all of these people did it, and I think they're all very happy that they did. Um, one huge negative that's been mentioned by many people, but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, echo it, is the set design. Um, very surprising by by Dane Laffrey. Basically, the entire stage of City Center was was raised uh, with platforms. But then in addition to that, on top of that platform, there was another raised section, much smaller but um, but way too high, uh, like maybe three or four feet high. And a lot of the pivotal action took place there. And you just got the impression that it was so high up and so far away from you. And also you couldn't see, uh, for what it's worth, you couldn't see the, you know, the bottom parts of, of the actors' bodies. You couldn't see their feet and you couldn't see maybe like about halfway up their, uh, their legs. Uh, so you got the impression of having a, an obstructed view. Um, so I think that if this moves to Broadway, which is the, the very, very strong rumor, I think that that set is going to have to be rethought. I, I certainly hope so. And I, I am surprised at Dane Laffrey, but I, I don't know, um, you know, how much of that was done in conversation with Michael Arden or, or whatever. Uh, but that really needs to be rethought. But really I, uh, I, it was thrilling to be there. I, I it was thrilling to me to react so positively positively to the show when I did not the first time and I'm so glad that I saw it. All right. So uh there is much buzz around town about a possible move of parade we'll have to see what the spring brings and what's available. I mean uh we seem to have a little bit of a traffic jam in the, in the uh, Broadway theaters right now so and you don't want to <laughs> You don't want to bring it into the wrong theater. You know, you, you kill these things. You bring them into the wrong theater. So uh, that is Parade. And I guess the last performance is uh, this afternoon, Sunday, November 6th at 2 p.m. So if uh, you're not going to see that, you have missed it. By the way, there was a talk. I went to the matinee specifically because I, I was hoping there'd be a talk back, and there was. And both Jason Robert Brown and Alfred Yuri, who wrote the book, participated. Um, ben Platt did not participate, but Michaela Diamond, um, who is phenomenal as Lucille, uh, did, and several of the other cast members as well. So that was another reason I was just really thrilled to be there. So, Peter, you got over to the John Golden Theater to see Top Dog Underdog. Tell us what you thought about this uh, two-hander. Well, um, considering that the piano lesson is in town as well, uh, I couldn't help noticing the differences between the two plays. And what I mean is, in the piano lesson, uh, Boy Willie very much wants to succeed, but within the parameters of the law. He wants to sell his watermelons. He wants to make the money. He wants to sell the piano. He wants to make the money. He wants to use that money to buy land. Um, it, the problem there is that his sister does not want to sell the piano. But notice that he always says that once he sells the piano, he will give her half the money. So 
why why am I mentioning this in conjunction with Susan Laurie Park's top underdog? Because I'm sorry to say that the two characters in this play are, are not that respectful of the law. There's a scene where one comes in having done a great deal of shoplifting and um, it, with clothes. He takes off his clothes and there are clothes underneath the clothes and he takes off those clothes and there's clothes underneath those. And the audience laughs at the fact that he has beaten the system. And I don't find this very, very helpful. Um, I don't think it's the way that uh, people should proceed. So um, I, I turn against um, this character under those circumstances and it's supposed to be funny. So, so as a result, um, I resist this. That said, the two gentlemen playing in the parts um it's a two-character play a terrific they give it their all we are talking about a situation where a man is making his living playing abraham lincoln and he's at the uh, possibility of losing his job we also have another character who believes that um he can um, and his name is booth by the way they're lincoln and booth i mean that's what their parents named them so in a way you can sort of tell what's going to happen given what happened to the real Lincoln and the real Booth. <laughs> um, so um, it, it may not have occurred to you that way, but it certainly occurred to me And um, when I first saw the play many moons ago. But uh, but anyway, a, a top-notch production of Top Dog, uh, no question about that. But um, uh, the play's um, unfortunate aspects are ones I cannot overlook. All right. So that is uh, Top Dog Underdog at the Golden. It's playing through January 15th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you got over to the Roundabout Theater Company to see an interesting titled show called You Will Get Sick. Uh, tell us, did you get sick? <laughs> <laughs> well, my initial reaction to this play was very mixed. I uh, I thought it doesn't really work, but... Um, I felt there was a lot of really interesting writing in it by Noah Diaz. It's, um, I guess you'd describe it as an absurdist comedy, uh, for the most part, comedy. Uh, and it's about this youngish fellow who gets some kind of a very bad um, medical diagnosis uh, that he is going to become seriously ill and presumably die. Uh, and he uh, responds to this by putting flyers all around town, uh, set in New York, by the way, uh, saying uh, th that I have something that I I have to tell. I think Peter discussed this a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it no. came up even though <laughs> he hadn't seen it. Uh, he, he puts up flyers saying, I, I have something that I have to tell someone. Uh, so if you call me uh, so I can tell you what I have to tell you. I'll give you, and initially he says $40, but then he crosses it out and says $20. Um, so that becomes a, a, a point, uh, an issue when this woman uh, played by Linda Lavin calls him and, and because she's intrigued by it and she wants the, the money because she needs the money. Um, and so he, uh, they, they form a very unlikely friendship, which is, uh, I guess, I like that part of the play. It, it seemed like a, the kind of thing that would only happen in New York, <laughs> uh, you know, and I really like that. Uh, Daniel K. Isaac, by the way, plays the, the young, the youngish fellow who has gotten the very unfortunate diagnosis. And also in the, play are Marinda Anderson, Nate Miller, and Dario Ladani Sanchez. Um, I uh, 
all kinds of really fanciful things happen. There are a few <laughs> moments that seem very realistic, and then, uh, but a lot of absurd uh, occurrences, as I as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think I personally have a a little bit of a problem with plays that go back and forth like that. Um, if you don't have a problem with that, you'll probably enjoy it a lot more than I did. Uh, but I did appreciate the, um, a lot of the writing, as I said, and it's always, always a privilege to see Linda Lavin on stage. Um, she really brought this character to life uh, with her um, typical, uh, well, she, she has her, I guess her, um, I don't want to say shtick. <laughs> she, she has um, her, Method, style. Her, her style, her <laughs> method of delivery, uh, especially in comedy that, that I, I really respond to. And I, I, I believe obviously many other people respond to it as well. And if you liked her in the past, in, in the many, many things that she's done, I think you'll be very happy to see her here. Um, but uh, I, I felt like the play was aggressively kind of aggressively uh weird and absurd for example the characters have no names and i guess maybe that's partly because several of them play multiple characters but here that their name their names quote unquote are number one number two number three number four and number five i don't know if that was really necessary um but anyway whatever whatever good feelings i had <laughs> uh, about this play uh many of them were dashed uh just actually this morning when I, I noticed uh, on Facebook um, and a, a promo ad uh, that the roundabout had put up uh, for this play with the uh, cast members and the director, Sam Pinkleton, uh, talking about it. And at first it starts off fine. The, the cast members are saying, you will be transformed. You will laugh a lot, blah, 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 blah. And then Daniel K. Isaac said, uh, da not Daniel K. Isaac, excuse me. Then Sam Pinkleton says, the director says, theater doesn't have to be boring. Oh. I mean, can you imagine? This is someone with almost no credits as a director. Previously, he had done a couple of things as a choreographer. And that leads me to the other reason uh, that my my good feelings all, all but evaporated. There's a, there's a program note by Todd Hames, that, uh, the artistic director of the roundabout, that's tremendously off-putting. And I, I really think that, you, you know, uh, when you're an artistic director of a of a of a <laughs> not for profit theater like this one or or Oscar Eustace uh, at the public, he's another one who tends to do these tremendously off putting program notes. I, I don't think you're supposed to tell people how good something is uh, before they see it. I think you know. I, I think you have to be really careful when you write those program notes. And I wish they would both stop doing it, or they would uh, they would be more careful because I. Uh, the effect on me, I can only speak of the effect on me, and it's a very negative one. Uh, so I'm sorry that both of those, uh, that promo ad and, and this program note um, made me feel even worse about the play than I initially did when I saw it. Um, I'm surprised, Michael, that um, even though uh, you certainly gave a great deal of time and attention to this, you haven't mentioned that The Wizard of Oz plays a great deal <laughs> of uh, a, a great part of this play. It's uh, yeah, I caught on kind of earlier when um, when he was spitting up straw 
Um, they call it hay, but anyway, yeah. there he was. There yeah. was a lot of talk about what's going on in his brain. Um, and if there's any doubt that the, the Wizard of Oz is behind all this, uh, <laughs> wait till the last five minutes and you will be totally convinced. Uh, yes. you, will, you will not think I'm going out on a limb or that I'm um, crazy for saying this. So uh, <laughs> one of my uh, faithful readers did say many years ago, you can't go 48 hours without hearing a reference to the Wizard of Oz. And this one certainly starts the clock. Uh, no, theater doesn't have to be boring, but I was somewhat bored by uh, this show. <laughs> Yeah, so let the punishment fit the crime. And confused. <laughs> yeah, another one of these people who's going to come in and is going to show us a thing or two. You know, that's what that's what we're so lucky to have these people who are just going to show us the, where we've gone wrong. What kind of PR or marketing uh, department yeah. approves a promo ad where the director in in this tone that I'm about to yeah. imitate says theater doesn't have to be boring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God Almighty. Yeah. All right. So (laughs) we're going to go for sick on this one. Yeah. Uh, Michael is in the sick category. (laughs) Let's move on to uh, Straight Line Crazy at the Shed. Peter, you got a chance to go over to the Shed and see this. So what did you think? Well, this is about Robert Moses, and um, there he is um, tearing down houses to build um, two um, important roads in Long Island, and then he's going to do the hmm. Cross Bronx Expressway, and a lot of people are going to lose their homes. And uh, needless to say, he's going to meet with some resistance. He truly believes he's right. He truly believes he's doing a favor for the um, New York area. He truly believes that. At least that's the way it comes across with uh, Rafe Fine's astonishing performance. He's magnificent um, in this self-righteous and um, totally secure feeling that he's doing the right thing. Um, of course, there's got to be conflict in any play, and that comes to some degree, not a lot of degree, but for some degree from Jane Jacobs, who you may uh, have heard of. There's even a Jane Jacobs way down in the village because he was thinking, uh, Robert Moses was thinking of putting a tunnel under the um, famous Washington Square Arch and uh, to flow traffic and all that. And um, he met with a great deal of resistance. It didn't wind up winning that battle, as you well know, if you've been to Washington Square Park. Um, so Helen Schlesinger, I wish I'd more to do, um, but Judith Roddy um, is one of his uh, employees uh, who, uh, as the years go on, and the play does go um, more than 20 years, I don't mean in length, of course, but nevertheless, um, it travels 20 years, uh, she becomes far more involved and uh, far more trusted than she showed up as uh, a glorified intern way back when. I have to say that, you know, plays are supposed to, I guess they're supposed to um, make you make up your mind about one way or another. And I have to say, coming out of this, I don't know who was right. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe David here really did a special thing here by showing us the assets and the liabilities, but it came out to me as a tie. I, I, I just saw what Moses was saying and I saw what Jacobs was saying. And, um, it's like Tevia, you're right. Um, you're right. Um, in fact, you're both right. I mean, I, I just don't know what to think after seeing this play, but it has stayed with me. And maybe that's what David here wanted just for us to think about these things and how they might impact the future. I mean, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but, um, I came to New York in the late seventies when Robert Moses was a dirty word. And uh, of course, he hadn't been um, 20 years earlier or even 40 years earlier uh, to, to many. Many people were very grateful for what he did. Um, and uh, so I, I'm not sure. But 
I'm very glad I saw it. I, I, I sort of liked having this experience of coming out, not being sure who was wrong or right, because I tell you, <laughs> the older I get, I see so many both sides of a story. Um, I'm talking about real life now. You know, the people argue about this, that, and the other thing, and I, I, I see where each is coming from. So I saw where each was coming from here, but I was tremendously entertained and gripped by Straight Line Crazy. Peter, what's going on at the shed? Uh, uh, I mean, oi, you're oi. Are, are you on no. the uh, are you on the nominating committee this year for Drama Desk? Yeah, yeah. Are, um, are they? Would they like to be considered for awards? Um, I guess so. I asked about it uh, if I might jump in, and they said yeah. uh, that they had so few tickets that they didn't invite the, the, uh, everyone of you know of the larger groups, as, as they put it, uh, and they did say that they invited the nominating committee. All right. Well, also, um, uh, I'm on the Lortel nominating committee, and it's definitely on that list of uh, shows to be considered. Of course, perhaps the reason is that there are 30 nominators, and um, and uh, then the nominators themselves after the, the winnowing down vote. And so maybe they feel that um, 30 or 60 tickets isn't so bad. I don't know. But um, but yes, uh, they uh, certainly are on the Lortel, and um, I don't know. If I, I, it hasn't come up yet with um, Drama Desk. We we just met yesterday, ironically enough. Uh, but we 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 started back in May, June, and yeah, working our way chronologically. So um, we haven't gotten to that point yet. So, uh, Michael, I understand uh, what you're saying about the lack of tickets, but it seems like nothing at the shed. You know, they 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 don't. I don't get press releases. We don't get invites. Well, we don't get anything. Yeah, no, I, I followed up on that as well. And I noticed that the one press release I got on this uh, had two contacts on it. One was um, Polk. Uh -huh. And the other one was uh, someone at the shed. Uh, and uh, and then, but I, I wrote to Polk and, to ask about it. And, and that's where I was told uh, what what I said. So I think this has happened before uh, in some weird cases for Drama Desk, where they invited only the <laughs> like the nominating committee, but not the voters. And yet somehow, then the uh, then the shows were still considered. Right. So they for, wanted nominations, and they knew they wouldn't get wins. Yeah, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it becomes a, like a balancing act. I guess maybe you could call yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, if it's any consolation to people listening to us, it's an awfully hard place to get to. Mm, um, sure. Uh, it's not very close to subway lines and there's a lot of construction going on. Uh, it's hard to find. And they do request you get there 30 minutes early because there's so much consternation going on around there. So, um, so I will say that, uh, at this moment in time, um, the shed uh, seems as far away as a shed in West Virginia. <laughs> the um the Hudson Yards uh station that new Hudson yeah. Yards that that's the, the closest train. one right yeah oh yeah I that's right yeah on yeah that is so, that's yeah, not that, so far no but, good for you I forgot yeah. about that yeah yeah right yeah for the Javits connection there right yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely all right so that is straight line crazy at the shed through December eighteenth and obviously it's hard ticket to get because uh, they said mm. so. <laughs> because they so, said so. Because they it. said so. Uh, and you can't really tell anything off Broadway. It's easier to tell uh, with the league, yeah. the league numbers that they send every sure. week. All right. So uh, you went from the very western p 
court of Midtown to the depths of Brooklyn to the Irondale Center to see Hedda Gadler, uh, this uh, Bedlam production, uh, Bedlam in Rep, they're, uh, they're terming it as. So tell us about it. Well, it's not Hedda Gabler as you know it, and I guess you'd expect that from um, a company called Bedlam. It uh, it's very very uh, contemporary in the sense that um, it's it's set in the here and now. Uh, a microwave oven is very important to what goes on in this uh, production, so that alone should tell you that indeed um, we're we're dealing with. Um, a different situation. It's um, it's done in a church, in a not in pews. Uh, there are theater seats and there are folding chairs as well. So uh, keep that in mind. That um, it, if you get discouraged by going to a church, thinking, "Oh my God, do I have to sit in pews?" Uh, no, you don't. No, you don't. That said, though, um, we are in a situation where the hall is um, not that commodious and. What's really something is I've never, not I've never, I've rarely had the experience, rarely, where at the end of a first act that no one claps. So obviously this wasn't pleasing its audience. Eventually, um, longer than you expect to take, one person did start clapping and stopped very quickly, realizing that nobody was going to join in. So, um, so this doesn't seem to be the people's choice. However, I will say that Susanna Milanzi playing Hedda is terrific. I think she deserved applause. Now you might say, well, you were there. Why didn't you applaud? You know, uh, truth to tell, <laughs> I was taking a note, you know, um, because uh, that's what I was doing. I, I take a lot of notes. And so um, that was the reason for um, my not applauding. But um, had I not been taking a note, I certainly would have applauded her. So I think she's really, really, really quite wonderful. The rest cast is good, too. But it is an offbeat production. No, that's not true. There's uh, one performance that um, is way over the top. But, I, of course, we have to blame the director for that. Um, I was very disappointed by uh, the aunt in this production. Let's not name names. Um, but everybody else is quite fine. And uh, the play holds up. I mean, it really does. About a woman who really... Um, got married uh, because she wanted to get married and she's not that crazy about her husband. Uh, she she wants him to succeed, not because she wants him to succeed as much as she wants uh, them to have a nice life. And anybody who's going to threaten that and get in her way is, is going to pay the price. But of course, eventually Hedda pays the price as well. But whoa, whoa, I tell you, the Susanna Malonzi really grabbed this part and really made it something. So um, if you do go, please applaud her for me, because I don't think you'll be taking notes and uh, make it up <laughs> to her, if you will. All right. So that is uh, Hedda Gabler at the Irondale Center. It's playing through November 20th, so you have about two weeks left to go check that out. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, it is very odd and very Mm. Anyway, mm. Uh, Peter got over to see every, Everything's Fine at the DR2, but uh, we heard a couple of days ago that uh, this uh, performance, uh, this show, Everything's Fine, which was written and performed by Academy Award-nominated actor, writer, and director Douglas Smith-Grath had just passed away two days ago. So, Peter, we're going to talk a little bit about Everything's Fine and, and more about Douglas McGrath. 
Yeah, um, it was a, it was quite a performance, and he really told a story that went in directions you wouldn't expect. Uh, when he was um, about 14 years old, a teacher took a great interest in him, too much interest in him, invited him over to her house, and said to him, uh, we're just platonic friends, that's all. You, are, If you make any move that's sexual, it will be the end of us. So keep that in mind. So... You, you you may be suspicious in thinking that she said that just to say it, and um, and later she would change her mind. What she is is terribly obsessive she, uh, with him, to the point of which she says, "Where were you today? I expected you to show up at my house. I waited till six thirty. Where were you?" And he finally figures out that if she, given that she said, "If you uh, make any sexual move to me, it's over between us," he thinks, "Well, great. I'll make a sexual move, and that way it'll be over, and I won't have to hear from her anymore." So he does make a sexual move, and she castigates him for doing it. Uh, no, I told you we're friends. That's it. You know, we're only going to be friends. Um, so on and so forth. Um, so he's he wants to play with his friends, and she expects him over there every day. And he doesn't know how to handle this. I mean, it overwhelms him. So he is so thrilled when she says to him, uh, my husband and I are moving to Oklahoma, so I'm leaving. And so to be nice about it, he says, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll miss you so much. And she said, oh, you will? Oh, good. I lied. My parent, my husband and I are not going to Oklahoma. <laughs> I lied. I just wanted to say, now I know that you really care about me, and I'll look forward to seeing you more and more and more. So this is the story, and it is quite gripping, and it does go in directions, as I say, you wouldn't expect. And he's he was, I was about to say he is, he was a, a, a masterful storyteller. I mean, he really kept you on the edge of your seat. And um, But I also have to say that Doug McGrath is somebody who impressed me many years ago with um, the screenplay of Bullets Over Broadway, one of my all-time favorite films. Now, it's co-written with Woody Allen. But what I learned from seeing the Broadway version of Bullets Over Broadway mm. is that so much of what I love about that movie is gone in the musical. So I attribute it to Doug McGrath. Um, this, the Bullets Over Broadway movie uh, essentially says to us, a true artist will not compromise. A true artist would even die for his art. And whether or not you believe that, that's what the story is about. And it wasn't as clear at all in the in the musical version so um so i and that same season when indeed bullets over broadway hit broadway down the street there was beautiful the musical about carol king which has a wonderful book written by douglas mcgrath so hmm. um i i will never forget being at a banquet with um <clears throat> with him and his wife I, I was sitting next to his wife, and he was sitting next to her. So that's where the three of us are situated. And at the end of the night, he came up to me and said, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to my wife nonstop. Now I don't have to hear on the way home. You know, nobody talks to me. They only want to talk to you. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. You know, and so that's a, a fond personal memory of Doug McGrath as well. And it was the only time I ever saw him or spoke to him, except, of course, at least seeing him and everything's fine. What an ironic title considering what happened. You know, what a shame. So, um, because he certainly had a lot of good things um, that he could have done in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. Initially uh, there was no report of the cause, but now they're saying heart attack. It must've just been one of those really sudden things. Very, very sad. I, I never met 
the gentleman. I'm sorry to say, I, I, I've always said that I think his book for Beautiful, the Carol King musical, is one of the absolute best for those types of you musicals. Bet. You bet. Absolute best. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also um, directed uh, the film, the documentary Becoming Mike Nichols. That was another great credit that he had. And um, I just double-checked it. It seems that although he was not directly involved in the musical Bullets Over Broadway, he still received um, you know, major credit for it. So who knows um, if he was completely uninvolved or if he offered some suggestions or mm-hmm. comments or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess we'll never know that. And oh, and also just quickly, and again, sadly, I guess we should mention because it just happened that we've just read that Aaron Carter died mm-hmm. um, and he did have some theatrical credits, including Susical. Um, actually, Janine Lamana um who wasn't Susical just posted about how professional he was in that show, even though he was so young when he was in it. Yeah. Um, and then, he, he, yeah, yeah. Uh, she said he, he would come out on stage and his fans in the audience would go bonkers yeah, yeah. and he would just stand like a professional and, and wait, you know, uh, until they calmed down and then he would go on with the show. Uh, and then he also did a stint in uh, the Fantastics as Matt, uh, when it was playing at this, that what was then called the Snapple Center on 50th and Broadway. Um, so I, I saw him in neither, but he did have those two credits. And it seems like it was a very troubled life, which um, I guess, uh, aside from everything, when you start, when you achieve fame at that young, I, I think he was, I think he was nine <laughs> when he had his first hit uh, record. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. You know, yeah. Yeah. Hard, hard to uh, maybe hard to get through that and and maintain your bearings and your sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so very very sad news about him. So I want to remind listeners that uh, Matt Tamanini interviewed Douglas McGrath last month on Broadway Radio in a special episode. Um, and uh, you can get that uh, in our feed. I'll include that in the show notes as well here for this week on Broadway. You can just click on that and get to that interview. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to the musical moment and trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn. Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? When a film is made from a Broadway property, there's a concerted effort to open it up, taking it to places that hadn't shown up in the stage show. However, one big mid-60s Broadway hit that ran more than two years took place entirely outdoors. And yet, when the time came to film it, it didn't open it up, but brought it indoors quite often. So, some people guessed a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. But that was early 60s. Some people guessed hair. But that was late 60s. However... Tony Janicki, Mike Meany, and Isaac Blevins knew that I meant Love, L-U-V, by <laughs> Murray Shizgle, and directed by Mike Nichols, which took place entirely on a bridge until the film version was made. Then it went into restaurants, homes, and a divorce lawyer's office. Hey, I never said it was a musical. Never did. Just a stage show. So there. This week's question. 
It's a film from the 1950s with about a half dozen songs. Four of its cast members starred in Broadway musicals in the 70s. <laughs> Two of them had their name called as Best Actress in a Musical, Tony. Uh, one was nominated. One wasn't nominated at all of the other two people. What's the picture? Who are the four performers? What musicals did they do? And how did they make out at the Tonys? So um, I, I'll tell you why this occurred to me, because I was uh, in Aruba um, on a, a cruise ship uh, doing um, my show, A Personal History of the American Theater. And this movie came on uh, TV, and I was so glad to see it. And um, I thought, whoa, look at all this. He's in it. Wow, she's in it. She's in it. Whoa. Yeah. So it added up. So as a result, a semi-musical from the 50s. <laughs> okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're, if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, having been so uh, disappointed and somewhat infuriated by that production of Raisin in the Sun, I thought we would offer two selections from the musical Raisin, which uh, I would say is a, a much more successful adaptation of that uh, original play and, and, and was at least, you know, billed as an adaptation rather than pretending to be the play itself, but actually being something else. So um, the, uh, the opener is uh, the aforementioned song, Man Say. And I uh, urge you to listen to it as, uh, as performed here uh, from the original cast album and compare it uh, to the or original monologue, uh, brief monologue from the play, from the non-musical play that you can easily find the text of online if you Google it. Uh, and then the, our closer is the finale from Raisin, which, uh, m to put it mildly, is a, a lot more hopeful <laughs> hopeful than uh, the ending of this current thing at the public theater. <laughs> All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.